I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Play Me, your digital theater. We transform the hottest contemporary plays into bingeable audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Hi, and welcome to Play Me's special series, The Show Must Go On, featuring our interview with the playwright and performer of Take the Milk Na, Javish Parasram. An award-winning multidisciplinary artist, a community activator and facilitator, Jiv's works have played both in Canada and internationally. He's the co-founder of the award-winning and coincidentally named collective Pandemic Theatre and now holds the position of the Artistic Director at Rumble Theatre. Laura connected with Jiv, who is quarantining in his home in Vancouver. They talked about why Jiv decided to write an identity play, even though he dislikes them. What it was like growing up in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia as an Indo-Caribbean Hindu kid. And why he made the bold decision to ask some audience members to temporarily leave the room during his hit show. This is my interview with Jiv Parashram. So... I just want to start by saying that um, I think when we were going to record, it was in, you know, mid-March and you were actually just about to hit the stage with your show uh, and then the world got cancelled. And I just wanted (laughs) to ask, how are you doing? I think you're home now in Vancouver? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm back in Vancouver. Um, And it's it's interesting, like I was lucky that I was in Toronto when when everything did get cancelled and and everything had to shut down because that's also kind of home. My parents are there. So I, I got to be between two places, but it is, you know, most of my day-to-day life is, is in Vancouver right now. So it was, it was good to be able to get back here. And I think just the, the regularity of it was helpful. Are you able to work under these circumstances? Are you working from home? Or I know that you're the artistic director of Rumble Theater now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're working. We're, we're giving it a shot. Uh, I mean, we're actually, we're in the midst of kind of launching a... A digital season which we're trying to get an announcement out in the next uh before this comes out we'll put that out there and we are trying to do a whole different exploration of digital mediums with it and then we started this kind of podcast thing uh, called the transmissions which used to be a, a publication we used to do in the 90s and a couple other things there, there's actually there's a fair amount that we're doing so there's been a lot going on it's a different way of working though that's for sure just going back to talking about you working in the digital realm, I, I think it's really interesting as somebody obviously who works in it as well. There's always that push and pull in theater about where digital technology belongs and in, in something that is essentially a live medium. And it's really interesting to see it become more embraced in this mm. situation because it doesn't replace it, obviously, at all. But mm. it's nice to know that, you know, that there is a place for it and that people can still be creating work and uh, sharing work under these strange circumstances, which obviously would have been a lot harder, say, 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, you know, like I think 
in some ways we're we're all cyborgs to a certain extent anyway so maybe just right now we're more cyborg conscious uh because there's this is our main mode of external communication so that changes the way that you experience life so it makes sense to me that um whatever artistic stuff we're doing right now should you know at the very least address it in some way I want to jump in now to your play. Um, and I, I want to just start by asking if you would, for anyone who ha- might be listening to this podcast before listening to your, your show, can you tell us what it's about? Sure. Um, so from like a erudite, like philosophic standpoint, it's kind of about monism and um, the difference between monism and dualism and, and that kind of conflict. So that's one way of looking at it. But really, it's it's an identity play that's about destroying the concept of an identity play. And an identity play, we kind of explained in the show, but like is this format that's been very popular in Canada. And then what the show's about is taking that down and also realizing why the identity play can be, a, I don't want to say problematic, but it's a, it's a genre or uh, an artistic form that I am very conflicted about. And I think that there's good reason for us to be conflicted about it, not to diminish its value. Can you describe what a typical Canadian identity play would be like for those who who might not be familiar? Yeah, sure. Um, So, you know, uh, Canadian identity plays, uh, historically, they were really popular in the 90s uh, in particular. Um, They tend to be this case where there is someone from an external culture external being external from the mainstream Canadian culture. And often they are trying to find their place in a Canadian culture or the dominant culture, dominant mainstream, whatever that might be. And the identity play is kind of a reconciling of um, usually the culture of the the country from a point of immigration as it's because it's mainly done, or at least I would say most commonly done uh, for at least at that time period for people who were part of a a migrant diaspora. So reconciling that ancestral home, the usually a generational thing between like parent and child, if it's a first generation situation, uh, and then reconciling that with being in Canada and living up to this cultural mosaic kind of standpoint. And then usually in identity plays, they they figure it all out and everything's okay, or somebody dies or, uh, you know, something happens. Usually there's a nice tragic monologue at some point and some point of reconciliation. Would you say that in a typical identity play, the character ultimately or the protagonist fits in? Well, they may fit in overall, but I think that what they experience is a feeling of... um, of not fitting in. So whether that's an imposter syndrome or like a resentment even for fitting in, if that makes sense. Uh, I've seen work that does tackle it in that way. And all of those things I should, you know, I do want to keep going back and, and saying that all, I think this genre is actually really important in its, in its own self and, and uh, continually exploring it, I think is important. But I, I think it's, it's about not fitting in and trying to fit in and then maybe being okay with not fitting in is the positive resolution. I guess that's what I meant, that that was the goal, at least, or the quest was to, to find a way to fit in. Yeah, I think at least originally. And then usually like there's a antithesis point where it's like, oh, but actually I don't fit in and that's okay. And maybe that's more of the later identity plays. Like it's okay to be different type things. 
In your play, you talk about uh, growing up in Nova Scotia and um, people perceiving you as being black and your family joking that you're considered the white boy in your family, which mm-hmm. which is, is a really interesting um, situation. Can you talk what it's like to feel like you don't fit in in so many places? Sure. Um, you know, I mean, I would say that like some of that in the play is like a little bit uh, indulge to a point, although there were there, I don't think any of that was not true. But uh, Nova Scotia is uh, an interesting place because, as like a visible minority, it's it's. I'll put it this way: it's it's really different living in Vancouver now, uh, where there is like a massive South Asian diaspora. The context of there being much else when I was growing up, besides black and white, um, I think was pretty sparse at least in in the neighborhoods i grew up in and so when on top of that you also have the the hindu aspect which to me started to become you know at least a realization point of that being really one of the major differences because while i think schools were pretty good about like at least by the time we were in grade two or three saying racism is bad the idea of um religious diversity or the diversity of worldview is something that just didn't exist. So it was, it's a very Christian place. And when I say that, I don't mean that it was, it's everything is Christian, but it's the, the culture of it is very Christian. And a lot of things in the Hindu worldview, or, or at least what I would come to understand was a bit more of a Hindu worldview. Uh, that makes you pretty other throughout because there's very essential basic principles that make up the society you live in and when you have a philosophy that's kind of somewhere in the back of your mind is telling you and informing how the world is really and and what your perception of it you realize that there is um, a contradiction in that so I guess like that that thing about not quite fitting in wherever you go that's kind of what it's like or 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 another way of thinking of it is it makes you really understand the aspects that make you an individual, whether that's a good thing or a bad. Because even in South Asian circles, I I occupy a very different place. And I think some of that is by being Indo-Caribbean versus just of a South Asian, uh, Indian or Pakistani um, diaspora. It's kind of a step removed. And that was always an extra thing amongst even um, more of an ethnocultural grouping. You know, I, I, I ask that because I have heard that a lot from first generation immigrants who have talked about how they feel other when they live in Canada. But then when they go back home, they also feel like they don't 100 percent belong and are considered white because they weren't raised, born and bred in that culture. And you talk mm-hmm. about things like um, feeling third world proper. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about how you would feel when you would go back home to Trinidad or within your own family? I think you say in the play that you were the first of your siblings born in Canada. Yeah, yeah. So I was the first of the siblings born here. And um, yeah, going back, I, I feel like there was always something to prove. And I don't know if that was true of my family in Trinidad at all. Like, I don't know if they cared or they thought I had anything to prove. You know, we they would tease us at being maybe a little bit soft for growing up in, in Canada. And I think that's also because there's an idea of what growing up in Canada is, that it's this, uh, that we were living some kind of uh, cool, wealthy lifestyle, which is really not the case. <laughs> um, but uh, I think 
you know, simple things that I would hear my brothers, my older brothers uh, talking about doing like um, so my my family, there's there's two sets of brothers, so two sets of two, basically, and they're three years apart. But then there's a gap in the middle. So myself and my immediately older brother, we grew up mostly in Canada, whereas my two older brothers, uh, they grew up mostly in Trinidad, at least at the point we were going back and forth. So they would do simple things, mix mortar or uh, take care of cows or um, light fireworks, like all sorts of very simple things um, helping around the compound that we lived on. And I think there was an excitement to go back and do some of that so that we could feel like we contributed something to this family home. And also, like, practically, we weren't in Canada, we weren't mixing mortar and laying down pavement and stuff because in Canada, you don't really get a chance to do that unless you live in a really rural place. And I grew up in like a suburb in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. So it's generally pretty civically managed. And do you think that there's a difference with your brothers that were raised more in Trinidad than you? Just in terms of your outlook, attitude? Yeah, I'm sure there is. Um, You know, I think that especially when it comes to the Hinduism aspect, there is a difference. Um, and and there's there's other more more very like simple, simple things from day to day. Um, but like with the Hinduism thing, it's, it's interesting to me because I think for them, they grew up and um, they were around it all the time. And I, I don't know that people ever really explained that much to them. There was an expectation that they should know. And occasionally, I think amongst um, my dad's generation, like my uncles, my aunts and stuff, sometimes it would it would just be um, a way of enforcing rules without a proper explanation. And so I didn't have that. I didn't have the, a culture around me that was of that worldview. So for me, when I was trying to learn about Hinduism, I, and we didn't we couldn't go to the temple in, in Dartmouth either. So I was really learning on my own through books and trying to understand the philosophy as best I could through my way. So that gave me a very different relationship with it. Um, but then there's there's practical things, right? Like I remember I was driving with uh, one of my brothers like must have been like two years ago. And we were talking about this and he said, like, you know, there's a difference in understanding um, the value of things, because when they grew up, with my dad's job in Trinidad at the time, like they actually, they were pretty well off for a while. Like they, they had money, um, like my immediate family. And so he always says that he says like, well, we, we grew up having money, uh, but you and, uh, my other brother. So he said, you guys grew up when we didn't have money and there's a difference there, but the difference is still that like, while we didn't have money, we still had access to things like, uh, pencils very easily whereas in Trinidad like even though we had money it was like no 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 you get this pencil but it's going to be a long time before you can know for sure that you're going to get another good pencil like this because import export doesn't work in the same way so you learn to value like individual items that kind of thing so you know whatever that affects in terms of worldviews there I think there would always be differences in that way I think access to something like a pencil would definitely have it an impact on somebody when, you know, in Canada, and I think now just with this global pandemic, we're getting just a very, very small sense of what it's like to like not have everything that we're used to having all the time. So I imagine that would make a big difference in someone's outlook overall. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. Like I, 
uh, looking at what's going on now, it seems to me and and through chatting with colleagues and, and kind of observing what's going on, it's the people who I think are are the most used to the convenience and have the most um, uh, free ability to pass through the world that are having the hardest time with the pandemic and the possible issues of maybe not being able to access all the things you need. And it's just, you know, no, no judgment on that. I think it's like, oh, when you are not used to that, it becomes a bit of a thing. Absolutely. It's a lot of people, myself included, really, first time not not being able to have you know, basics on some level that you're used to and mm-hmm. hearkening back to, you know, just remembering things like my grandmother saving things all the time and not always understanding where that was coming from. And now I'm like feeling a little bit more connected to to it and, and, and realizing just, you know, not that I didn't know it before, but just living it a little bit more about the privilege that we have living here in this time and in this era. There's this thing about, I guess, like about immigrant households, like there's always a couple of memes and stuff going on around it, like this and a BuzzFeed stuff. Um, but like just the, the knowledge of uh, being, say, Caribbean um, and like if you see an ice cream tub in the fridge, there is no guarantee that that's ice cream. <laughs> you save everything. <laughs> right. Um. And it started off, I understand, as as more of a storytelling piece. Is that? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about its um, development? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so uh, originally, um, Graham Isidore, who's one of the co-creators um, on the piece, along with Tom Arthur Davis and myself, and he was kind of like led more of the dramaturgy on it. He used to run this storytelling night. Uh, called just Press Gang Storytelling Night. Press Gang Theaters, his uh, theater company, it was out of the handlebar in Kensington Market. And he would generally do themes. And so I think the theme was milestones for the, the night that I was up with this one. So we, we wanted people to talk about milestones in some way, major moments in your life. And he had also asked me to see if I could do something a little bit lighter. Um, I tended to go... Uh, pretty heavy it's like critical race theory stuff because i was really into that at the time which still found its way (laughs) into the piece for sure but uh i went up and i I just told the story about um trying to birth a cow not myself trying to help a cow give birth i should say so that was the first step and then we kind of like i think i did it for a fringe show because he had like a best of type thing and then be current uh performing arts they have a festival called Rock Paper Sisters, and um, they were doing a themed festival on the idea of higher power. And there was a little bit in the piece uh, that had to do with uh, Hinduism, like a little bit, not that much. But I thought this would be a good chance to kind of focus on that. And I wanted to start to talk about the the Indo-Caribbean indentureship and the migration and it's great because Be Current brings out like a very awesome mix of diaspora. But at that time, like was really bring out a very heavy um, Caribbean diaspora relative to a lot of theater. So I thought it was a great opportunity to show it to that audience and see what people had to say there. So did that one. And yeah, that was it for a while. Um, Be Current then, they offered us the chance to try to do it as a full production. And so we figured we'd give it a shot. And then Pass Mirai had something that in the season that had dropped out. And so they were like, could we support it in some way too? So that worked out really well. And um, we just kind of took it from there. And obviously the show 
uh, incorporates a lot of details about your personal life. I'm just wondering in terms of the process, how do you know, you know, what's a relevant um, piece of information? What's a relevant story? I know we just did uh, Karen Hines play Crawl Space, which mm. uh, is inspired by her real life. And we talked a little bit about how do you wade through the material when you're drawing from yourself to know what's serving the story versus what's well, not because it's sometimes harder to be objective when you're dealing with your own stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's where it really helps to have Graham and Tom uh, around. So they're like two of my best friends and super close collaborators. And what's good is like, you know, the the cow story and also the story that kind of focuses more around 9-11. Those were two stories I had tested out with live audiences before in some respect. And, and there was instincts to maybe try to find a way to push them together. Whether or not we got there, we weren't sure. But there would be so many times when I would just like go off and I'd write and I'd come back in and I would just be like, all right, here's this story about a mixtape my mom had that I used to listen to. And it'd be like, oh, that's a nice story, but that is uninteresting and doesn't help anything. It's like, all right, cool. I'm going to go back, <laughs> write something else. And there was a lot of that. <laughs> and you use so much humor in your show. It's almost like it's two shows. The first half is very... <laughs> funny and and then it, it sort of changes its tone a little bit i'm assuming that was a very conscious choice yeah kind of personally <laughs> um, I, I think the second act is kind of funny too but uh it is, it is. but it's yeah it's definitely a different tone the first the reason that there's such a tone shift i think um is um I know I could give you a great explanation like uh, dramaturgically it's because we have now gotten to the point of understanding what it is to be divided and now we need to really enact that. And and I think that's actually true. There is that aspect. But really it's because we got to the end of Act One, basically, and we were there for a long time. Um, and then we were doing this workshop. Uh, we had a week at the Passamari Backspace and like we had gotten nowhere i churned out a lot of different stuff and um but at the end of the day we were stuck trying to expand this thing and i just started like banging my head against the stage and i was like this play is about nothing like it's just an identity play and and like if you want to have some good proper like uh warm feeling thing you should just go watch coco because it's significantly better than anything i could ever do or anything that the humanity could ever do Coco had just come out uh, but you know I was freaking out about it and then Tom was just watching me do this it was like oh it's interesting like what if the play is about nothing what if we lean into that and so then I was able to take that and go deeper into the Dharmic philosophy about what is nothingness in a certain mm. sense the nothingness of identity the illusion of identity so that's kind of what that second act is it's definitely a lot more theoretical than the first act yeah did you think about when you were writing it the two different audiences that were hearing this show or were witnessing this show because i feel like it landed on me differently than it would land on somebody that was considered other so i just wonder mm -hmm. how much of that was um how much how conscious that was when you were putting the piece together a little bit um yeah, a little bit. I think it was always in the back of my mind. And, and so in this kind of division of we kind of talk about it as people with a mainstream experience versus people with a marginal experience. But I, I think it was always in the back of my mind because there was there is in the form a lot of explanation of like the othered person doing their identity play, explaining their identity to a mainstream audience. And I 
think that that was something we were always looking for a way to resist because often there is an expectation that the audience is just mainstream. There's an expectation in Canadian theater, at least, that the audience is uh, not necessarily made up of a people with a, a large span of minority experiences. And I think that does a disservice to what audiences could be. I absolutely think audiences should be heterogeneous, and I think it should be a place where people come together and have different experiences. But the assumption that things must be explained uh, is something that um, I think we were resisting at first. But practically, I also recognize that there's a lot of explaining that has to be done because, like I was saying earlier, like my my brothers grew up in in a in a part of the society where things weren't explained to them. And even though that they they lived in that culture, not everything got explained. So then you walk away from that culture and you're divorced from it in some way because you don't fully understand it. Um, so there is a benefit of explaining things in that way. And that's both for a mainstream and a marginal audience, if we want to talk about it in that way. All to say, I guess, yeah, I was thinking about both, but also thinking about the necessity to if I could get an audience to at least get on board with the idea that we're all the same, also break that down again, because it's a great idea to think we're all the same, but reality says different. Experience says different. What did you want people to walk away with after seeing that show? Honestly, the only thing I really wanted people to do was call their family. Anything else? Uh, no. I mean, <laughs> like, I, I guess... Um, Probably like rethinking stuff about society, getting a little bit more of um, a dharmic perspective, uh, understanding intersectionality a bit more. Those are all benefits. But uh, when I make stuff, I tend to think about what the immediate action could be, because if your immediate action is like, yeah, it's going to change your way of viewing the world. I don't think that's attainable. But I think if this piece can elicit someone to say, oh, I should call my mom or I should call my aunt. To me, that's a success. If you just connect with your lineage in some way, that's important. And when I say family, like, you know, whatever you view family as. There's a bit of a surprise near the end of your show, and we have your permission to talk about this. You break a theater convention by asking certain audience members to temporarily leave the theater. Can you talk a little bit about this? Yeah. So what we try to do, and I don't know if it always transfers like perfectly, but what we try to do is um, after I've kind of given an experience uh, or a description of what a what it means to be marginal, drawing on like a personal experience, then we ask the audience to self-identify if they experience something similar to this on the daily. And, um, and if they do, we ask them to stay. And if they don't, we ask them if they can uh, just leave the room for about five to seven minutes or so. And we hold space to kind of uh, have a discussion with the people who, who have that marginal experience. And, um, and also if people have mobility issues, anything like that, uh, we, we invite them to stay too. Can you just kind of break down a little bit more about sort of how you would identify it within the context of the play? Well, I hope I make it clear, as clear as I can. I, I don't think that we successfully do uh, because a lot of people um, have trouble with that part. People have to say, where do I fit in? There's something about hierarchy in there too. And it's like, there's a hierarchy about marginalization and I guess mainstreamness uh, being not marginalized. And then we kind of like, 
invert that hierarchy, but the hierarchy still exists. So it's troubling to a lot of people because I think if you don't experience marginalization necessarily, and then you're like, but now I'm lower on the hierarchy, that's a troubling uh, and disturbing thing. Ideally, there is no hierarchy. Um, ideally, that's what we're going for. The hierarchy is the problem. Like, either you experience this or you don't experience this. If you don't experience this, nothing's wrong with you. Just, you can go outside for a bit. Um, that's what that moment's about. Uh, it's not really about, like, who's got the most marginalization points. Uh, I mean, we joke about that because humor is how you survive, I think. I love how in the play you say, and if you think you're really woke... <laughs> You know, that's great, but you still you still have to go out for this portion of the show. Yeah, yeah. And 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 so what what's the reaction like in in the theater when you ask people to leave? Changes depending on where I I've done it and depends on the audience each night. You know, I I think when we first started doing it, there was a bit of surprise, uh, but generally people were pretty okay with it. Sometimes there's a bit of like defiance. People are like, I'm going to stay no matter what. And that's cool because I I like I try to make it clear that I don't know anyone's experience. And so if they choose to stay, they choose to stay. And that's that's fine. Um, so I've heard a lot of really great reactions. A, a colleague of mine saw it and um, he's um, uh, a white queer man, but he's from a very small town. And, and he told me that when the audience left and he stayed he was like oh i better really gay myself up so everyone knows but then had more of the realization like oh but everybody here experiences this so i can relax so that's one experience i have uh, another friend who, who's a person of color a queer person of color who like blacked out because he was like i don't know how how is this happening like this is not a thing that we should do um and I've I've also had people who have stayed and then written me later to be like, hey, I stayed. I really feel like I shouldn't have stayed. Um, and that's interesting. It all depends, right? Like so many different aspects, generational aspects, everyday life aspects. When we did it at the NAC, I got um, a note forwarded from me. And I don't think that the audience member was accusing me of anything, but just was talking about feeling brought back to... Uh, thinking about the polytechnic shootings and the idea of separating people in that way. So there's also this aspect where it can be very disturbing to people and it can really go like, I will say that's in no way my intention, but I also, I get why that might be the case. To separate people uh, can really stir up a lot of emotions. Um, but I think it's important in that moment because to achieve what we're going for in the piece, which is somewhat of a ritual, especially in the live performance aspect, there needs to be an action. And so this is an opportunity for people to do an action. So even in listening to it, uh, there is an opportunity given for an action. And whether people choose to do that or not, I think is about how much they're choosing to participate. I loved in reading the script in the stage directions, you were very clear, like, if this isn't you, don't read this this section mm. and I and I have to say because I was reading it to think about whether it would work as a podcast so I'm like I think if I was in the theater I would I would leave but I feel like I need to read the script because right. um, yeah, yeah. you know we're gonna make it into a podcast but um I thought just thought it was interesting that it was very explicit even even for the person who was reading it what was the feeling like in the room for those who stayed uh tense at first probably um I think there's a lot of not knowing what's going to happen next. Uh, and, you know, I can't say what it is every time uh, because I, I think it is different 
every time or or there's a lot of diversity in how that could go but generally like there's some relief um again there's a lot of jokes in that section still even though it does talk about some serious stuff but um i think when when i'm doing it and there are members of the audience who are with me on it and who start to get it and what what i say in that moment really has to do a lot more with nationalism and the dangers of nationalism and i think that when i i can connect with people in a real way and see if they're receiving it it can be a really great intimate space and a a bit of a moment of peace in the in the midst of the show um which i'm happy that there can be something like that for people who do experience marginalization because a lot of the show is talking about marginalization and explaining marginalization so for most people who know it it's like there is some validation in hearing about it but honestly like they already know so now what um and so that's what that part's about and was there any pushback from theaters who who would think that um that the people that were asked to leave the room should actually hear what you're saying? Uh, there, pushback, no. Fear, maybe. Uh, a little bit of fear. Some of that speaks to the fear that often we have in programming theater where we don't give our audiences enough credit. People have seen a lot of stuff. Well, theater is supposed to challenge you and to surprise you. And I would say, obviously, you're achieving those things with this play. It'll be interesting to see how it translates in the podcast. Obviously, it's Mm -hmm. a different thing when it's not experienced as a group. It'll be interesting to hear what people's feedback is about whether they took the directive and moved on to the next episode or whether they actually listened. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm super curious. And I'll never know, which is the coolest (laughs) part. I will never know. Email us and let us know. Yeah, yeah. I think that's all my questions. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on? No, I think um, I think that's it. Thank you guys so much for um, having me as part of this. And uh, yeah, everybody on the team, I, I know really appreciates this. I think it's a great way to be able to have some access for it. And especially like Indo-Caribbean people are really scattered throughout the country. We're a pretty small population overall. Uh, and so the fact that uh, I can now maybe send this around some circles it's really great and helps me achieve a lot of it, which is just talking about our history. So that's really impactful for me. I appreciate it a lot. Well, we've loved recording this show, and this is a, a unique situation for us because we, you're the first show we recorded remotely as well as your interview. And um, we haven't actually met in person, but yeah. it's gone very smoothly. And <laughs> we appreciate it. And it's great to meet you this way and hope to meet you in person and see the show in person. Fingers crossed. Let's see what happens next. That was Laura's interview with playwright Javish Parasram. To listen to Take the Milk Now, subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts or on the new CBC Listen app. And while you're there, please consider rating and reviewing us. You can let us know what you think of our podcast by emailing us at playme at cbc.ca. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at playmepodcast or Twitter at Theater. We'll be back next with Secret Life of a Mother, an uncensored and taboo-busting look at motherhood by Hannah Moscovich with Mev Beattie and Anne-Marie Kerr, co-created with Marinda DeBeer. Until then, be sure to check out our entire collection of plays turned audio dramas, available for free on the Play Me feed. Stay well. Special thanks to our CBC producers, Fabiola Melendez-Carletti, 
Cecil Fernandez, and Tanya Springer. The executive producer of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani. The senior director of audio innovation is Leslie Merklinger. Play Me's associate producer is Pippa Johnstone. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Play Me is produced by Expect Theatre in partnership with CBC Podcasts. For more information on our plays and artists, please visit playmepodcast.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.